Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In our last episode, we covered civil birth records. And as promised, in this week's episode, we finish up this two-part series with church birth records. And just like with the civil birth records, there are a variety of records to track down. So to help us out in the hunt, I'm bringing back in professional genealogist Arlene Eagle, who will help us to see the challenges we face and the success we can have locating church birth records. Well, the very first place to uh, check is the International Genealogical Index that's compiled by the, by the LDS Church because they have been responsible for extracting through their, their regular record extraction program, their controlled program. They've been um, extracting the information from church books in many foreign countries as well as the British Isles and the United States. Just one little fact may enable you to get the right answer where everybody else has has gone from a printed source or from some other abstract which was incomplete and drawn the wrong conclusion. In this episode, Arlene's going to give us specific and targeted information about which church birth records are available and how to find them. So get ready for another intensive half hour of training from the best in the biz, Arlene H. Eagle, Ph.D., Eagle is the president and founder of the Genealogical Institute, Inc., and a professional genealogist since 1962. She holds both an MA and a PhD in English history and an associate degree in nursing. A prolific writer with more than 90 titles to her credit, she was general co-editor of the award-winning The Source, Guidebook for American Genealogy. She also co-authored the national bestseller, Family History for Fun and Profit, The Genealogy Research Process, and Genealogy in Land Records, and Ancestry's Guide to Research. This is one smart gal, and in this first segment of our interview done over Skype, Arlene digs right into an overview of church birth records. Well, Arlene, we've talked about civil records here on the show, the ones that are recorded at the through the government. Um, but then there is a wealth of church records available. And as you mentioned uh, when we last talked, they can go much farther back. So take our hand and, and pull us into the into the arena of church records. What are we looking for and what's available? Well, the very first place to uh, check is the International Genealogical Index that's compiled by the, by the LDS Church because they have been responsible for extracting through their, their regular record extraction program, their controlled program. They've been um, extracting the information from church books in many foreign countries as well as the British Isles and the United States. 
And so that's the very first place if you're interested in finding the entry from the church record. You put in the name of the person and the date that you, you or an about date, and I always like to include on their search screen, it gives you the option that you can search for a period of five years or ten years or as many as 20 years at a time. Mm -hmm. And so you can put in the name of the person you're looking for, and then, you know, if they if they have already extracted, it will come up, and it will give you the source information from which the entry is put into this index. But it includes, well, the, I think the, the version that is frozen on the Internet at the present time has more than 700 million entries. That is the largest single database of church records with births, and the birth is the primary entry. Wow, just immense and, amount of records. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, your chances of finding someone are very good. And a second thing that often happens, you may have an ancestor who is a namesake for someone else, and when you put the name in, if you search 20 years on either side, you will frequently pick up the namesake as well. Oh. That's a great and that will, tip. It will often give you a clue as to where you are to search next. And so if you find that someone has a really unusual name like William Swinfield Hatch, uh -huh. then if you find another William Swinfield Hatch in the database within the years, then you, you need to look at that person as well. That's a great tip. You know, you might find lots of George Washington locals. <laughs> exactly. You know, or Andrew Jackson somebody or Franklin Delano Roosevelt somebody. And those are going to be less important. Yeah. But where you, where you have, have a, a person who is, you know, just has a regular, seemingly regular name and you find the exact same name within the time period you're looking at, it's very important to look at both because they can indeed be related. So the IGI that we're searching from the FamilySearch.org website, all of these just millions of records that you're talking about are transcribed right off of the church registers. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and they were transcribed by people who were trained to read the records and trained to do it. And, and those that went through that extraction program have a high degree of accuracy from the original. Every once now, in a while, you'll find something that really looks funny, and then you know that, you know, but it will give you the source information so that you can actually check it out, and it's always a good idea to do that because frequently the source will give you additional information. That's what I was going to ask you was, can we just rely on what we're getting through the IGI, or is it always critical, and I'm assuming it probably is, to try to get a hold of a copy of that original source? Always, yeah. always. To whatever degree you can do it, it's important to get a copy of the original because, as I said, it can give you additional information. And just just one little fact may enable you to get the right answer where everybody else has, has gone from a printed source or from some other abstract which was incomplete and drawn the wrong conclusion. Uh -huh. And so it's always very important, in my opinion, to get a copy of the original. 
Well, and you made that point as well when we were talking about the civil records that, you know, you can locate the civil record, but it's always, always a wonderful thing to go and get backup sources, everything from checking a cemetery record to looking it up in the newspaper, just seeing how things line up. Even though we, we look at a register on a church uh, on a church register, the birth record as, as a primary source, even if it's you're looking into secondary sources, it's really nice to see if there's anything that stands out that just doesn't quite jive. So you can kind of check into it further. <clears throat> because in, and, and especially with specific kinds of ethnic backgrounds, they're going to have very small name pools, and so you'll find yeah. lots and lots of people with the same name. Exactly. And you you want to be very sure that you've got the right one. Now, there's one birth record that we haven't talked about that is extremely important, and that is the Social Security Death Index. Uh-huh. It's probably next to the IGI. It is probably the the second best place to quickly retrieve a birth record, a birth date. And with the birth date, then you can do lots of different things. But it's the birth date that is so very, very important. And um, some of them will will go back um, as early as 1850 or before. Because of the age they were at the time that they registered for Social Security. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you can get them, you know, and so it's always important to check the Social Security death index, always. If your person died after 1937... You should always check that because it will give you some very, very important information. But you bet. primarily that birth date. Now, we talked about the Social Security Death Index on our earlier episode, and I'll have a link for that in the show notes for this episode uh, if you want more information on it. But, Arlene, I'm assuming for a birth record, that is not considered a primary source then. That would be a secondary source. Would it well, not? I wouldn't call it a secondary source. It's still a primary source in that the person who is that you're interested in is the one who gave the birth information. They are giving their own birth information. And so it has the chance to be every bit as accurate, in fact, more accurate than the person who is relying upon the doctor to record the fact or the father to submit the information. Mm. And uh, some fathers of uh, different periods of time, the father may um, may actually submit information on three or four children at the same time. And so what, uh, what you have to realize is you're talking, you're actually talking to the person himself. He's the one who filled out the Social Security information and gave his birth date he's not right. the one who supplied the death record right Someone <laughs> supplied that but he supplied his own birth date it's what he thought his birth record was or okay. he wanted other people to have as his and so it is a primary record for the birth yeah, because I was wondering, because although, of course, that person is uh, present at their birth, <laughs> they aren't necessarily in a position to record it at that time. So they are relying on the information told to them. But if anybody knows it, it accurately, it's probably the, that person. So that's wonderful to know that we can look at it in that fashion 
and we can still look for other sources to back it up, but it sure is a quick and easy way because it's free online, right? Absolutely. In yeah. a number of, a number and variety of places. So, uh, it's, it's very, very important. I don't know if in your previous interview, um, when you were talking about the Social Security Death Index, uh-huh. one of the things that, that I always was puzzled by was I would look for people who should have been in there before 1965, but I never could find one. In fact, I might, I might look at whole, whole surname groupings and never find one that is dated before 1965. I discovered that they they didn't put those all in and they still aren't all in there yet as they have time from entering the current death information they are adding the pre-1965 names Ah. and so in every update of that database there will be additional entries that were not there before from the time period 1937 to 1965 so and not so, to be discouraged. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, I mean, I assumed that when they put the information in, that they had people who were working in that earlier time period, too. But they didn't do that. They started with the current date, and then they went backwards and forwards. And the, they started with, um, they put in all of the 1965 plus, because those are the people who are still living Mm-hmm. Exactly. And they would be the ones who would need that information for legal purposes. Well, the people who were born or who had died prior to 1965, the majority of them were no longer living. And so it was uh, an economic choice based on some very logical reasons. But genealogically, we need to know that not everybody is in there yet from that early time period. That's a really great tip. It just reminds us over and over that the the Internet is an evolving moment by moment. It's different than it was. <laughs> so Absolutely. we can never look at it as a stagnant resource, but this constantly evolving resource that what isn't there today may be there tomorrow. Absolutely. And we need to check it. It needs to be checked on a regular and consistent basis, as does any database that is in, in the, you know, the, the state of flux. And with uh, with new family search, once it's universally available to everyone, yes. then you want to be sure that you check that because it will change uh, probably minute by minute. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> once again, a ton of great information. Well, we're going to go even further into church birth records right after we take a time out. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. And you're listening to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Now let's head back to my conversation with Arlene Eagle and her tips on how to track down church birth records. Arlene, let's then talk about if for some reason we don't find the birth record, the church record that we're looking for in the family history library, it may be because this person lived more recently. I know in the case of my great-grandparents, 
their uh, and my grandparents, their birth records were not in the family history library records. But I actually contacted the church in the little town in Illinois, and they were able to make copies for me. Talk to us a little bit about what we do in the last hundred years or so, and and, and about contacting churches themselves. If you have the name of the locality, the quickest thing, in my opinion, is to go uh, onto the Internet and to go into um, either Roots Web uh-huh. or U.S. Gen Web and go to the county where your, where your people lived and then check to see if there isn't already a current list of churches that apply to that area because many genealogists have have already done the legwork and they know that there was a church that was at this crossroads and your family lived in that area and now you've got the name of the church you may even have the address of the church if it's still a current church and you have uh, information about the records of the church have the records been published are the records available at the church? Have the records been transferred? It may be that a genealogist has already done that legwork for you and you don't have to do it all yourself. Oh, wonderful. And so that's what I do. I go on to either RootsWeb or US GenWeb for the county where that family lived. And I look for the churches. I look for the cemeteries. I look for... Um, the marriage records frequently they, frequently they've already put some of the vital records onto that site or they are in the process of doing it and there may be additional sources which they have put on there like biographical sketches which often give birth information mm-hmm. um and so forth that that may help you you know immediately people start on the internet anyway yeah it, you can put it to really good use. I love that you brought that up because <laughs> you, you can really get tunnel vision when you're working, can't you? And you just start thinking oh, about yes. where these things are, and you forget that there's millions of other people out there also doing research, and they may have already done some of that legwork for you. That's a Absolutely. wonderful point. <laughs> well, and, and and it's especially true, I think, if you find that you're the only one in your family that it seems to have any interest. Yeah. But you, you know, you forget about the fact that there were siblings to your ancestor who also probably left descendants mm. and they're floating all around everywhere. They could be anywhere in the world. I had a, uh, a con, I mean, a, a contact from a woman who is from the U.S., but she's currently living in China. And so she does all, everything that she does at the moment is, is online. Because wow. that's her only only access to information. Yeah. And so she wants to know what can I do online to be able to trace my family. So she doesn't know anybody else in her family that's working. If this is you know, she's starting out and, and uh-huh. needs to start from scratch. But she's gonna discover that there are lots of other people in other parts of the world who also have an interest in her ancestor. And may have already done, as you say, some of the work. You know, and, and you mm-hmm. mentioned RootsWeb and you mentioned US GenWeb, which is just about one of my favorite sites. And when you go to that county level, we have to remember that uh, each 
county website is hosted by a volunteer. They're all going to look different. So we're looking for a variety of types of everything from digitized records, but more likely indexes, to even the name of a person who might be just willing to go because they live down the road, and they'll be willing to go and do it for you. And and that brings up the Random Acts of Kindness website. Uh, there again, if you can't find it online, there may be somebody who lives just down the road who could go and be willing to check in at the church itself. That's absolutely right. There's a, There's an awful lot of volunteerism in genealogy. Yeah. And thank goodness there is because, you know, there's a lot of information that that has been compiled. Now, another retrievable one is Uh books.google.com. You can put the name of your ancestor in the Google search box and you can come up with all kinds of information because they've already put that online. So published volumes that that were published many years ago and are considered rare books that sometimes your local library will never have heard of. You may not not have heard or even thought about it. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden here turns up the entry for the very ancestor that you're looking for. This approach is not as successful if you're looking for John Smith. Yeah. You see, without a considerable number of qualifiers. But if you have someone who has even a modestly different given name, Mm -hmm. then it makes it possible like you have Mordecai or you might have Claiborne or you might have Sheffield or Sherwood or any number of different given names with a common surname. And now you're off and running. Exactly. And these volumes that you're talking about, these are perhaps somebody at some point who sat down and compiled all the data out of the church registers for a particular church and publish them in book form. That's what you're talking about? Uh Uh-huh. I'm also talking about both serialized and uh, just, just individual volumes of genealogy information that was published in every different place. There are literally hundreds of thousands of these books. Right. Google has as as their mission to put every printed book from the beginning of printing to the modern day online. Wouldn't that be fantastic? (laughs) That is a very huge, huge mission. And so, you know, they're just getting started. But if you have British Isles research, there are many, many uh, series of volumes that are only available in one or two libraries in this country and in and in just a few libraries in the British Isles. Uh-huh. And they will come up on your screen for free on Google. Gosh, you remember when they first started talking about digitizing the census. And when we thought about the pages and pages of in, on the rolls and rolls of microfilm that we had looked at ourselves, it, it almost just seemed impossible, and yet they accomplished it. <laughs> So when you, when you talk about what Google's doing, there again, I just wouldn't be surprised. And it's amazing how quickly they can do it these days. Oh, yeah. And they've got it done, and, and uh, they've been through, for example, they've been through the Wisconsin State Historical Society, which is, is one of the incredible collections. And all the books have been microfilmed, I mean, uh, digitized. Wow. You can access them through Google. And you have absolutely no idea what they collected. They collected 
because the man who was actually in charge of the collection um, in the 1840s and 50s was Lyman Draper. And it was his desire to do a history of the United States from the, the Appalachian Mountains west to the Mississippi River. Yeah. And so that included all of the areas. That included all the south. It included all those middle states. And it included all of the northwest. That's amazing. And so he has all this Virginia information that he collected in book form, books that were published in early 1800s all the way up to ni- the year 1900. Many, many, many books are in that collection. And, you know, there just aren't all that many easily retrievable copies, but especially not for us out in the West. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, you're We're not near those Eastern libraries. You have to <laughs> go there in order to use them. And if you go, for example, to the Connecticut Historical Library, the State Library, or to the Connecticut Historical Society, they have a limit. You cannot make a photocopy out of any book published before 1950. So even if you find the information that you want, you can't make a copy. You have to handwrite it. Mm. Or perhaps even take a digital photograph these days if they allow you to bring this. You know, every every one is different. Exactly. They won't allow you to do do that because the light. It's it's the light Uh, and the physical flattening of the book in order to take a picture. Yeah. Yeah. And so the project that Google is doing is extremely valuable to us because it makes it available to us, number one, for free. Uh-huh. But number two, they're, most of them are very good scans. So they're very legible. And in most instances, you can make a photocopy at least of one page. You may not be able to photocopy the whole item, but you can get at least the page that you need to show the proof of your ancestry. Exactly. Oh, all great tips, amazing resources, and they're, and they're adding them every day. And uh, you were definitely the person to talk to about these because I know that you are in there, as you said, getting to the library three or four times a week, and you are just hands-on with uh, the genealogy of many, many people, aren't you? I, yes. I do work for a lot of clients. <laughs> You can find Arlene on the web at arleneekel.com. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about, at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems Premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.